Back in the day, if you needed to get from point A to point B and you didn't have your own car, you'd maybe hail a taxi or pick up the phone and call a dispatcher. It could be a major hassle to get a ride, especially if it was raining. Today, the customer is in control. Cars for hire are flooding the roads thanks to companies like Uber and Lyft. But that convenience comes at a cost, not for the consumer, but for the person behind the wheel. Welcome to Benchmark. I'm Scott Landman, an economics editor with Bloomberg News in Washington. And I'm Daniel Moss, economics writer and editor at Bloomberg View in New York. So, Dan, I just wanted to talk about it was so bad taking cabs in D.C. when I first moved here about 15 years ago. Uh, you couldn't get one when you wanted to or if you were in a part of town that didn't really get served by the cabs. It was just really, really hard. And you get into arguments with cabbies about the zone fare system, which was its own beast. It was just pretty crazy. And now it's just a different story using your app to get an Uber or a Lyft. And it's just been really great. But talking with the drivers, they just seem to work really long hours. They don't make much money. It's kind of true for both the taxi cabs and Uber. Dan, are are you finding things to be pretty similar in New York? To a point, where I live in New York City, it's very, very easy to hail a cab. There are yellow cabs, green cabs, all kinds of cabs, really, uh, running on the street next to our apartment building. It's very straightforward. Neither my wife nor I have had to rely on Lyft or Uber. Now, having said that, it's quite a contrast from the 10 years I spent living in suburban Maryland, where it was very tough to call a cab and get them there on time. Ride share companies in that context were far, far more helpful. And I can say, as a resident of suburban Maryland now, uh, it's pretty easy to get a rideshare, Uber or Lyft, out in the in the suburbs these days. Easier uh, much than easier. Barwood cabs. Right. The Barwood cabs. You still see them around, but uh, I think the company uh, isn't, isn't doing well. They actually filed for bankruptcy. Well, I think it's clear they're not doing well. <laughs> anyway, let's talk a little more broadly about who loses in the rideshare economy. And we have a distinguished guest who's able to talk about that. Henry Farber is the Hughes Rogers Professor of Economics and an Associate of the Industrial Relations Section at Princeton University. Dr. Farber, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Scott, for having me. So, Dr. Farber, first of all, you wrote a study a few years ago about why it's so hard to catch a taxi cab in the rain in New York. Can you tell us just a little bit about that and what you found? Yes, that, that was a study addressing uh, something of a controversy in economics about how individuals make decisions. And in particular, some people have argued that taxi drivers or other workers set an earnings target for the day, for example, and when they reach their target, they go home. So some people had conjectured that it's difficult to get a taxi in the rain because the drivers do so well that they reach their target early and then say, okay, good, I'm going home. Um, An alternative view is that when it's easy to make money, you say, gee, I, it's, it, this is great. I'll make hay while the sun shines, so to speak, even if it's raining, and I will continue to drive. I took a look at this using complete records on the driving history of every taxi in New York for five years, 
and was able to figure out that, in fact, in hours when it rains, the taxis are very busy, but they're not making more money because they have to drive slower. So it can't be the case that they're going home early. What happens during rainy periods is there's more demand for taxis, obviously, but it's also true drivers don't like to drive so much in the rain. It's harder and they they just some of them just take a break. Now, the market has probably changed in the few years since you put that out. There's probably more drivers on the streets in New York, I guess, just because of Uber and Lyft, more cars out there. How would that affect the market? It just seems to be pretty unfettered uh, in terms of the barriers to entry for, for people trying to get in as drivers. Well, as you know, or as most people know, New York had a very heavily regulated taxi industry with the number of yellow cab medallions capped at around 13 or 14,000. And what had happened was when Uber came in, basically relaxed this constraint and allowed other ways for people to get rides. Uh, so fundamentally, the technology of being able to match riders and drivers was a huge leap forward, and it really allowed essentially a relaxation of, of the limit on the number of cars that could be out there. And I think we're feeling that today because apparently traffic is a lot worse. Uh, it takes longer to get, for example, from Manhattan to LaGuardia or to just get around Manhattan because of the increase in the number of cars on the road. Did taxi companies see this disruption coming? What did they miss that allowed this to first creep and then gallop up on them? I don't think the taxi companies themselves foresaw this. Uh, the, The technological leap happened in the sweep of history rather quickly. And frankly, the real, you know, some people who lost were people who had invested in medallions whose value is solely the result of the the regulation of the number of medallions and the price that can be charged uh, for a taxi ride. So if you're asking about winners and losers, uh, certainly the losers were people who owned medallions. Certainly the losers were the people that owned medallions. And yet it back in those days, given the limited number of drivers on the road, you'd guess that drivers could still earn a decent living doing what they did. And now there's just so much competition that it makes it, I think, a lot harder for drivers to earn a reasonable living doing the same job. I've seen studies offering different numbers for what kinds of wages uh, drivers earn, but it seems like they're all fairly low. They're not, nobody's getting rich. It's probably tougher. Is that what is happening today, Henry? In part, what's true is the because the most taxis in New York City, most yellow cabs in New York historically, were not driven by the owners. They were leased daily to drivers for a, a reasonably substantial sum of money so that even pre-ride-hailing services, taxi drivers were not making a lot of money. It's, it was an entry-level occupation in recent years for new immigrants, and the what the drivers could take in in revenue and tips, less what they had to pay in lease fees and gasoline, really didn't make it even then a very highly paid occupation. Is this it for disruption in the riding industry, Hank? Will Uber and Lyft and companies of that ilk be themselves disrupted soon? What will be the new, new, new thing? Well, I don't know if there's going to be a new technology, but my own view is that 
What's really innovative here is the technology to match the riders and passengers. And as was noted in the introductory remarks, this is a bit less valuable in a very dense place like New York City. But in the rest of the country, when you live in a, a medium-sized city or even small towns, the ability to have drivers at the ready uh, to come out and pick you up is really valuable. So Uber may be disrupted and Lyft may be disrupted by new entrants who use the same technology. And, you know, so I wouldn't, I'm, I'm not bullish on Uber being able, for example, to corner the market in ride hailing. Let's talk a little bit about the broader labor market. Given that there seems to be an oversupply of drivers at the moment, and yet we have a labor market that overall is considered pretty tight in the United States with unemployment at 4.1%. Is this a situation among higher car drivers that can persist for a long period of time? Or, you know, could this sort itself out? Could we actually see the number of drivers uh, diminish as the labor market gets tighter? Well, I think that depends in part on whether wages grow elsewhere in the economy. You know, one of the conundrums in the current labor market at really unprecedentedly low unemployment rates, at least for quite a number of years, is that wages have not been growing. And one, you need to remember that many people who drive for Uber and Lyft and other car sharing services are people who have other jobs and are simply looking for ways to supplement their income when their first main job has fixed hours or at least no additional earnings opportunities for them. So people are saying, gee, I have a car, I have some time, I'd like a little more money, let me go out here. My own view is this could persist for quite a while uh, because of the flexibility that's built in. Hank, could the wrenching changes that Uber and Lyft have forced on traditional taxi companies ironically led to their salvation rather than their demise? I'm not sure how to answer that. I would say that Certainly, they'll have to adapt by offering better and different service. And one important way they could do that is by adopting the same kind of matching technology that, that the ride-sharing services use. So that if you could, if you live in a town and you have an app for the local taxi company where you just punch up, I need a ride and a car can show up in a few minutes, I think that would be a real improvement. Quality of service could improve. I don't have much, any evidence on that directly, but these companies could adapt or maybe these companies the existing cab companies will start to just, as I said, start to operate more like the ride-sharing services, and maybe that's the future. They, we don't need to save the companies in their existing form. They need to adapt what's newly to what's newly possible with the technology. And by save, what I mean is it is without question a better customer experience. The cars are cleaner. The driver's politer. I'm told strangely enough, that drivers would often refuse to take a passenger to Brooklyn. That's pretty much unheard of now. And you can also flag a Brooklyn cab in some parts of Manhattan. These sort of things were once completely off limits. Well, let's be clear. The green cabs, which are the, what are called the borough cabs in, in New York City, have only been around for a few years. 
and they are prohibited by regulation from picking up passengers on the west side below 110th Street and on the east side below 96th Street in Manhattan. To the extent they're they're picking up passengers in those areas, they're really not supposed to. What is true is I believe there are fewer yellow cabs on the road at any given time than there used to be because a lot of drivers don't want to pay the rental daily rental fee because they can't make as much money as they used to because of competition from the ride-hailing services. Professor, we were just talking about the future and adapting. And one thing that's really hanging over this industry, you can say it's a gorilla, an elephant, a big knife, whatever you want to call it, autonomous vehicles, self-driving cars. Sooner or later, they're coming, whether it's 10 years, 20 years, who knows. What are all these drivers going to do for jobs once they come along? Not just taxis, but also delivery vehicles, trucks, you name it. What does this do to the labor force? This is this is really the $64,000 question. In fact, um, driving-related jobs of all descriptions have been good jobs for low-skilled workers that are just above the lowest-skilled jobs in the economy. They can be very, quite skilled. They can be moderately skilled. And it's not clear to me what people with these skills or lack of better skills are going to do. Uh, we've seen some real, there, there's just a, right now, there's a lot of people interested in r- driving for these ride-hailing services because entry into that industry is just so legal. So, I'm sorry, not legal, but easy. There is very, some very interesting recent work done, which shows, in fact, that it's also very difficult to raise the pay of these workers in any meaningful way. For example, there was an experiment at Uber where they tried to raise the fees they paid to drivers. And for a week or two, the drivers would get more money, but then other drivers would say, hey, this is really good. And more, so many drivers would be out there looking for passengers at any point in time that the actual hourly earnings uh, went back to its original level. So it's very hard to know both how to boost the pay of these drivers and what will happen once, you know, I, I agree with you that autonomous vehicles appear to be in our future. And there's going to have to be some thought generally, not just for ride-sharing drivers or taxi drivers, but for delivery men, for over-the-road truckers, for bus drivers, for all of this. Um, What are we going to do with these people? I don't have a good answer to that. What about how the rise of Uber and Lyft and ride-sharing services fit into the broader shift in labor markets in developed countries, such as the U.S., toward what we like to call the gig economy. You know, it seems like work is getting less tethered to one specific employer or location, and people are taking more jobs as contract workers, which is basically what these uh, Uber drivers are, right? Yes. Uh, This has been an important change that predates any talk of the gig economy or ride sharing or any of that. Um, There have been many professions like engineering where companies hire engineers on a contract basis. Uh, It used to be that a worker who was an engineer, for example, and graduated college would think if they could get a job with a major company like General Electric or IBM, they'd have a career. And they were company men, and that was how it worked. Younger people today don't perceive their future in that way. And I think, frankly, public policy needs to adjust because – 
Long-term employment was a source of important, what we'll call fringe benefits, but I'll call core benefits like pensions and health insurance. And now that workers' links with their employers are more tenuous than they used to, this presents real challenges in how to provide individuals with, with the goods and benefits that they need. And aren't people getting stuck with things like non-compete agreements where they can't even get away from their jobs? I mean, at the same time that the labor market's becoming less tethered to companies like this, companies are still trying to keep those tethers in some ways? I'm I'm glad you mentioned that. This is an important trend in the labor market is, frankly, a trend toward employers having more market power over their employees. The employers appear to be less interested in having long-term employment relationships with their workers. They want to be able to keep workers around as cheaply as possible. And one of the ways they do that is to try to make it harder for them to find other jobs. And that's exactly what non-compete agreements do. They say, look, you can leave, but you can't work again in this industry for a while. Um, There's also been a spate of non-poaching agreements across firms. There was a very well-known case a year or two ago involving uh, some Silicon Valley companies um, in high tech that was um, kind of put together a bit by Steve Jobs at Apple saying that, gee, you got, we're all going to agree not to try to hire each other's employees. This is simply a way to keep labor costs down and presents real challenges uh, to employees, but, and also, frankly, to the antitrust uh, authorities in Washington. All right. Well, on that uplifting note, uh, we'll end this here. Dr. Farber, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. All right. Thank you. Benchmark will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, our Bloomberg app, and podcast destinations such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please take the time to rate and review the show. And you can also find us on Twitter. You can follow me at, at Scott Landman. Dan, you're at Moss underscore eco. Benchmark is produced by Topher Forges. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time.